1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books Network. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Sue Stewart-Smith about her new book, The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature. Welcome to the show, Sue.
0: I'm very pleased to be with you, Christina.
1: I'm so pleased you're here too. I love this book. I wonder if we could begin by you telling us about yourself.
0: Well, I'm professionally, I'm a psychiatrist, uh, and also a psychotherapist. Uh, and I worked in the NHS in, uh, in England for, for about 30 years. Um, for the last 13 years running a district psychotherapy service in Hertfordshire, very near where I live. And, um, and I went on to become the lead clinician for the, for the whole of the county, um, for the last few years of my time there personally um i'm married to uh, the garden designer called tom stuart smith we've been married for 30 years over 30 years actually and uh we've created a garden together during that time uh, around the house that we live in which is called the barn and it's it was very much making a garden from from scratch there was there was nothing here when we came it was a barn in the middle of a a windswept arable field. So, so that's really where the gardening element comes in, and um, I can say more about that later. But that's how I that's how I learnt to garden because I wasn't a gardener before I married my husband, and in the course of our marriage as well, you know, he he's gone on to have a very successful garden design career. So, um, so that's been very wonderful to see as well.
1: And that leads to my next question, which is, what inspired you to write this book?
0: Well, a number of things inspired me, actually. It was as if various parts of my life came together. So, uh, the book actually grew. It started from uh, giving a talk in 2013. I was asked by the director of a a museum called the Garden Museum, which is based in London, to speak on Gardening for the Mind for a literary festival that they were organizing, which actually we were hosting here. So, though it was sort of on my home territory, this talk. And, um, and it was in putting that talk together that I began to realize how much I wanted to say about it and how much in a way I'd been quietly thinking about it to myself, but not really articulating various aspects of it. Of um, Of why gardening is so important for our for our health in general so so that's how the book came about i think i I think the other thing that was in the background, which was very important and i i w- wasn't really aware of until I started thinking about um, thinking about the subject for that talk, was the, um, the story of my grandfather who was taken prisoner of war in the First World War and spent the whole of the war in a a POW camp in Turkey, uh, really sort of doing hard labor, um, emerged very malnourished, very traumatized, wasn't expected to live very long either. And, And I'd grown up with the story of how he'd recovered eventually through attending a horticultural scheme uh, for, for ex-servicemen. And, and he'd, he'd lived, he lived until I was 12. So I'd known him and I knew, I knew him as someone who was very comfortable in his own skin. You know, he didn't wear any traumas on his sleeve. And he was a very passionate gardener, uh, both kind of growing fruits and vegetables, but also orchids. He had a particular love of cultivating orchids in his greenhouse. So, so I'd not thought about that in the intervening years. So that, that really came into, you know, a very important strand of inspiration for the book. And there was a third kind of inspiration, which really came from my professional life, which was seeing how, how many more people were suffering from levels of anxiety and depression. And isolation, particularly uh, loneliness, and so on, and and that alongside that, our mental health services had been stripped back quite a lot. You know, we'd lost a lot of our day hospitals. Um, people were often um, sort of uh, their their care was 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 quite sh- more short term than it had been in the past. You know, they would they would they would be expected to have shorter term therapy and so on. And we were expected to, to deliver that. And I became concerned about what, what else we could be doing that was more community-based um, and to help with some of that. And, and you know, there's been a long history of horticultural therapy, but it, it has had a resurgence in the last decade, partly as a response to this sort of social crisis. So that really was my third inspiration, was wanting, wanting to address, address those issues, those There's social and psychological issues.
1: And in the beginning of the book, you you take us through some of your early years um, when you were in university and you were studying uh, literature and poetry. And you were really enjoying what you were studying and learning. Um, And then you had sort of a profound life event event happen. Um, You lost your father. And... You were going for walks along the water and you were sort of instinctively taking yourself to nature, not yet to gardening, but to nature. And it was at that point that you made the departure plans really to, to instead of go on to study more literature, that you would study um, psychiatry and medicine. Can you Can you tell us about that experience?
0: Yes, I think, I mean, that was a life changing experience for me. I, um, I was 21. I was coming to the end of my English degree at Cambridge University and I loved literature and I wanted to go on and do uh, a PhD at that point. And I was very interested in the romantic poets, particularly um, in, in Wordsworth. And that was what I thought I would do. Uh, but my father was ill throughout the last 18 months of, of my time there and died before I graduated and I, I sort of came I think to feel that I wanted to I wanted to um, be doing something more active in the world if that makes sense uh, that, um, that an immersion with literature was, was, was really important too but, but actually I wanted to kind of be working with people um, and yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't see myself any longer. Sort of doing, doing, um, doing, doing those, doing, doing something that wasn't. I think I would say quite sort of reparative. You know, something that was giving back. Um, so that became very important to me to, to move, move to move into a different kind of field. I think also my own grief reaction made me more interested in the mind and learning about the mind. So, so from the beginning, I, I knew that, you know, although I could, if you qualify as a doctor, you can go in all sorts of different directions. I knew that I would go into psychiatry. Um, and in the background was also a kind of, I'd, I'd been reading Freud for one of my English literature papers. And and that had also kindled a real interest and curiosity in how into how the mind works. And for me, in a way, although it was a big, big switch to suddenly go and study sciences, uh, and it was another very long degree on top of a kind of a three-year undergraduate degree. Um, I, I I've always seen psychiatry as as straddling the two, you know, that um for all the science that we have, so much of, of psychiatry is about attending to people's stories and the meaning of events for them. Uh, so, so, in a way, for me, it was a kind of synthesis, too.
1: And you, you talk about that in the book about meaning making through gardens. You say that a garden is an imagined space as much as it is a real one. And you also talk about how gardening can help people with making meaning out of what they can control and what they can't. Um, And one of the stories for me in the beginning that was quite vivid was your mother is um, moved now after your father has passed. And she has this little bit of garden that comes with her new place. And she's working outside. And you said you'd no sooner want to go out there and weed with her than you would want to bake some scones that to you, it felt like more housework. And yet, as you grew in your relationship with Tom and you saw his passion for for gardening and what it could be, you began to make meaning through a really sort of practical side of gardening. You were growing herbs and you were interested in how this could go into the food that you were eating. Can you talk about how gardening helps people make meaning, particularly in times of stress?
0: Yes, I think it's a very... Um... Very important aspect of, of gardening, and actually, it was very much that that I wanted to explore because I think um, there's quite a lot already that's been written about, that, you know, the physical benefits of gardening, uh, and and you know, some of the effects, anti-stress effects, you know, which are, which are very significant. Um, but I I wanted to look at look at the levels of meaning and some of the more unconscious effects. That tending a plot can have on us, and I think you know there was something where I can remember so vividly watching my mother. Um, I did occasionally help her. It wasn't that I didn't help her, but I vividly watching her, and I knew that I knew that something else was going on alongside this. I knew it was an essential part of her her grieving and her recovery. But at that moment, it wasn't the way that I was recovering. I was recovering through going into medicine, actually. Um, so, and, and sort of, you know, studying and taking all that on board, this sort of very different, new, new kind of learning about the sciences. So it was really quite, I suppose, if I'm thinking about time, it was about seven years after that when we came to live at the barn and started, uh, started creating a garden. And at that point, I, I again, I sort of, I, I didn't know very much. Um I'm not sure that I saw. I think I still saw it. It's a bit like outdoor housework, if you like. Uh, but I was desperate that we should make a lovely place round us. And and Tom, for Tom, it was a blank canvas. So I sort of tagged along behind, and sort of you know, we had three small children, so there was a, a limited amount I could do. It was only when our youngest went to primary school when he was five, that I decided I wanted my own plot. And that was the moment when things really changed. Uh, and I started growing her- herbs in that pot, her- herbs as we call them, and um, both culinary herbs and medicinal herbs. I was very interested in, in those, the, the kind of overlap. Um, and I loved cooking. So for me, that was a big a big thing as well to be able to grow these is a huge range of different interesting slightly sort of offbeat herbs so so that was what hooked me in and i think i think at one level there's also something very important in terms of the meaning that we ascribe to it which is to do with our attachment and feeling rooted and for me the the garden the land the plants it's a relationship. So you, you attend, you, you know, you, you have to notice things, you attend, you care for them. You know, you can be really angry or upset when the pests come and damage your plants. So there's a very important emotional level at which we, we respond to a garden. And, and at the same time, it's, it's a, it's a relationship that's, um, not even if it's a consuming one for people who are really obsessed um it's not demanding in the way that our 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 other interpersonal relationships are with people and that that is a very important aspect of it too that we're kind of free we're free to create our own meaning in the garden and and you know the plants aren't talking back to us as it were or or judging us, or you know, um, thinking about us in any way. Uh, although they do respond to our interventions, so that that I think is a very helpful thing. It kind of releases us from from you know the, the demands which can be very intense of what's going on in your relationships and and you know whether people like you or not and things like that. Um, so. I think that's very important. In terms of recovering from loss, the the um, the experience, and I think this was very important for my mother, was of of making something new grow again. And in a way, she was kind of building a new life alongside digging up her garden and getting rid of the weeds and putting in new plants um, and making a new beginning. And I think. You know, you only have to look how how regularly throughout history, and how how many people who have been traumatised or experienced a loss, how how frequently people do turn to nature and and the powers of regeneration in nature, which which give it gives us a structure, it gives us a sense that we can gives us something to hold on to. I think a sense that there is there is there is an alternative future. Uh, so you know, for somebody like my grandfather and and the other ex servicemen after the First World War, who were helped through horticulture, that's a very it helps you make that transition. Um, you know, just the power of natural growth uh, affects you, even if you're not conscious of it. It's 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 it, you're taking it in.
1: And you talk in the book about how gardens are on a different time schedule, really, than how modern human life is trying to order and control time, you say that instead of linear time, which is our very modern uh, reaction or or, uh, interpretation of time, that, that a garden gives us cyclical time. And that cyclical time you show again and again in the book is conducive to how healing goes, the processes of healing and the processes of facing feelings and dealing with them and as you said, with your your mom, she was able to do the weeding, and in the book you talk about how weeding is one of the um, acceptable forms of aggression that's infused in gardening. There's a lot of um, pruning and ripping out um, that's the maintenance of garden care, and that's a destructiveness that you say that's in the service of growth. And as people are starting over, there's a lot that they have to root out of their life uh, in order to go forward. Um, can you talk about how uh, the garden is a safe space to feel what you feel and work through those things, especially in a time where, as you say, mental health services are less available or are not as available for how long people might need to continue in them?
0: Yeah, I think that the sense of safety in a garden is is, very, is a very, very important part of the therapeutic effects of gardening and you see that very strongly in, um, people suffering from post-traumatic stress, for example, that, you know, the, the moment they enter the garden, their, um, their heart level, their heart rate goes down. You know, studies have shown blood pressure drops. Um, they have a palpable sense of physical protection that, that very quickly, um, translates into, uh, feeling feeling a protected space in the mind so that so that instead of having to be hypervigilant constantly you know the brain engaged in scanning the environment looking out for possible threats or anything unexpected that um, actually they can drop that guard and unless you can go into that state you can't begin to to attend to your feelings and you can't you can't begin to sort of let new experiences in either. So the garden, the way I see it is that I think the garden is actually, it is a therapeutic tool in its own right uh, in that situation. That, 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 that aspect of the setting is very necessary. It's a kind of precondition for people then being able to benefit from the therapeutic aspects of um, of working in the garden itself, being surrounded by nature, being surrounded by nature's beauty, and so on, because we all know, you know, you can be in such a state of mind, either so on alert or so low and depressed that you can't take 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 these things in. So so just helping shift your mental state, you know, the, the surroundings play a crucial part in that.
1: And you talk in the book, uh, you say, all organisms have a basic biological need to shape their environment. Um, and one of the impediments to that that you talk about is city life. You say, but in the city, most of the shaping effect is the other way around because people are not empowered to shape their surroundings. And you looked at several different um, programs that are going on in cities, um, several of them here in, in the States. Um, you looked at the large lot program in Chicago and what Mr. Finley is doing in L.A., and the Green Gorillas in New York. Could you tell us about um, those types of programs and what what they do?
0: Yes, I think they're very important. And I think, I hope that one of the things that might come out of the the pandemic and the current um, crisis that we're in, uh, which is going to have not only health effects that we're already seeing, but also social and economic Effects that we are already seeing too. Um, so I think in terms of how we how we rebuild and recover, these kind of community based gardening programs that can help empower people and bring people together are very very important. And they do often um, they they tend to spring up at times of of, of um, Adversity or crisis, uh, if you look at the kind of situations in which, um, in which they arise. So in, um, Detroit, for example, it was, you know, back in the 1870s, the birth of urban farming came about as a result of a economic depression. And, um, it was Mayor Hazen Pingree who, who had the idea of using vacant lots, uh, to grow potatoes and other, other food. Uh, food for for um, families who otherwise would the only option would be the poorhouse so so you you know if you go back to that in terms of the history of gardening in the city it's it's a very very important way of surviving adversity and and also i think celebrating what people can do when they come together because when we're all on our own separate treadmills and you know um working very very hard, and there's no doubt 21st century life is for many people extremely demanding that that we don't get enough opportunity to come together and and function in groups and actually that's that's really what we evolved to do you know that's actually where we draw much of our strength from um and uh in terms of our neurochemistry, those relationships and, and those bonds are very important in, in sustaining us. So I think all of those projects have a huge amount to offer. Um, the, one, the one that I, I'm, I'm very taken with at the moment is, is another one that you didn't mention, which um, uh, is based in uh, the UK, and it's called the Incredible Edible Project. And it was started by two women uh, over 10 years ago now, actually in response to the financial crash in 2008. And, um, and they just started guerrilla gardening. And they, they took over uh, a bit of land uh, that was outside uh, um, a rather derelict health center that had just been left to rot, really, in the middle of the town. And they started planting vegetables there and they put up a sign that said, help yourself. And the whole philosophy of this project is, is to change the civic landscape. So they've, they've planted, um, the canal towpath. They've planted, uh, you know, they've, they've created raised planter beds on some of the pavements. One of them is right outside the police station. Uh, they, they, they actually took the, the, the modern, the new health center that was built, uh, to task about the fact that everything was planted around it was sort of prickly, prickly bushes and thorny plants, uh, with the idea that that would deter vandalism. Um, and actually and so they said, you've got to be growing healthy food. You need to be, you know, so they got them, they got, they managed to get their permission to, to change, to remove them and to plant. Uh, fruit trees and a little apothecary garden and one of the upshots of all this activity was that quite quickly the levels of vandalism actually went down quite markedly and and the high street began to thrive you know people started selling food in the high street little restaurants opened up and actually this project really kick-started a local economy in a place that was really struggling it was a sort of post-industrial northern town on the outskirts of Manchester called Todmorden, and had been languishing for some time. Uh, you know, the, the mills that had once thrived there and, you know, in the 19th century and the early 20th century are long since gone. So, so the power of these interventions can be quite, quite profound and, and also in terms of all the people, the volunteers who work on the project, and their, their um, sense of contribution and community that's come out of it—it's very, very important. Um, and it's and it's um, it's an amazing project because it started sit- a group of women sitting around a, a kitchen table, sort of scratching their heads, thinking, "What could they do to try and improve the state of their of their town?" And now it's spawned, I think, over well over a thousand similar models, all called Incredible Edible. Not only in this country, but in, in other countries as well. So um, so I just think that's, that's a nice example, a con- contemporary example of, um, of how far those kind of projects can go. It is a lovely example. And one of the things that you
1: talk about with the community gardens is the importance of not putting um, the... Um, Chain link fencing around them, but have it be split rail fencing, have there be good sight lines so that people outside the garden can see in, people inside the garden can see out to create this psychological flow of the garden into the community.
0: Yes, that, that's a very interesting study that came out of um, uh, uh, a big long running research project in Philadelphia that was uh, an, an attempt to reduce gun crime, which it's very successfully did. Through greening vacant lots, and it was in association with the Philadelphia Horticultural Association. And um, Charles Brannas, who 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 ran the project, um, has published a lot a lot of very interesting papers about it. Um, but yes, the, what they found if they put up chain link fencing um, was that people just started throwing their trash over the fence, and um, so that having the having the the post and rail suddenly made it a communal space that people would gather and sit on the fence as well, um, and the uh, kids would come and play, and you know the mums could sit sit and chat to each other. So neighbors who'd never met each other, who'd never spoken, began to get to know each other, and people spent much more time outside than they had done before. And all that resulted in um, a lowering of crime levels, but also quite a marked lowering of levels of anxiety and depression in the people who were living around the, vacant, the, the green vacant lots. Because what they also looked at was they measured the heart rate of people who lived in neighborhoods with um, derelict and overgrown lots around them. And they, and they found that their heart rate, even though, even though they'd got used to this thing being there, it wasn't like it was new. They found their heart rate went up every time they walked past it. So at some level, the, these, these environmental, um, cues affect us quite profoundly. Um, you know, that wouldn't have been enough of a heart rate rise for the person to perceive it themselves. But if day in, day out, there's a kind of drip feed, of increased stress through heart rate, through blood pressure, through cortisol levels are another thing that have been shown to be much healthier when people have green green space around them. Then actually over time that accumulates and creates quite large um, disparities in the health of people living with green space on the one hand and without it on the other.
1: One of the other studies that you mentioned in the book, and it relates to what you're talking about now, is that the importance of going for a daily walk and that they found that people who were walking in a green space or near, you know, around green areas had a healthier walk than people who were walking through something that was derelict or that was congested or that had sort of all of the noise of the city um, going on while they were walking. Um, can you talk a bit about that and how that relates to the importance of how the human brain responds to the color green
0: yes, i think I think it's not only the color green, although I think that is an important part of it. Um, so yeah the green is green is green is a restful colour for the for our um our optical sort of system, and uh in terms of processing uh, you know visual cues from the surroundings. For our hunter-gatherer forebears, it was an indication of a place that was flourishing, that would sustain life. So greenery um there are many reasons why why green um seems to bring us to a lower level of arousal. Uh, and um that 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 that, if you like, is at root, is very likely to be a sort of survival mechanism. You know that actually, if people felt um, thinking about our remote ancestors, if they felt uh, relaxed and and um, experienced sort of pleasure, because there's there's also some evidence that endorphins are released when we have when we're um, surrounded by beautiful beautiful nature, um, then they were more inclined to. To linger and stay in this place. Um, so, so I, at one level, it's working through through a direct brain effect on us. Those the studies that you you refer to are um, are show a number of different results. One one is on our cognitive functioning. So, looking at the students who walked along a busy road compared to students who walked in an arboretum. The the students who walked in the arboretum performed significantly better on tests afterwards. And other studies have found that walking in nature um, makes people a bit more creative in their thinking afterwards. Uh, And another very robust finding is that nature turns off or helps us turn off. rumination so that's sort of dwelling on negative thoughts in a, in a circular way and that again i think must have must have ha- have in origin a sort of a survival advantage that that when we get out into the landscape you know we are we are still you know we evolved as hunter-gatherers this so much of this is genetically encoded in us um that actually you know hunter-gatherers needed to needed to Needed to turn off whatever preoccupations they had. You know, if you were in terribly internalized and brooding on something, you know, you probably wouldn't survive for very long out there in the landscape. So nature does seem to help people come out of themselves and draw us into a sense of connection with the world around us. And, um, and the other, the other very important aspect of that is also that it increases uh people's levels of empathy and even generosity so it opens us up in all sorts of ways i think you know they're they're, they're extremely important in in i think the current sort of culture that we live in which is often very driven by um competition um and and which people are, are often disconnected. You know, we're connected remotely, but not not directly. So, so that sense of nature connection is, is very important at an emotional level as well.
1: And the nature connection begins when you start your own garden. You were talking in the book about that when we sow a seed, we plant a narrative of future possibilities. It is an action of hope. Not all the seeds we sow will germinate. But there is a sense of security that comes from knowing you have seeds in the ground. Um, and you talk about how in caring for the seeds, we, we uncover our own self-compassion as we, we deal with plants that are growing. But also in, notably in the prison uh, project stories that you relate, even more begins to happen because as they are growing things, birds come. Butterflies come, bees come, lizards come. And I've noticed that in my own front garden. I have a small space that's mine and it was just, um, gravel. And I remember thinking when I moved in, will, will nature, will, will I have natural experiences here? And as I got more and more plants, I realized I had now a lizard living in my yard. And I was so excited when I met the lizard who had moved in because I had these plants and um, and so I really, um, I felt sort of viscerally how the prisoners felt when the birds came, because I remember when the birds first came to my garden. And while I, I haven't shared their experience of being, you know, confined, um, when nature starts to respond to what you've created, it is a really magical feeling that you're now drawing in more, more elements of nature. Can you talk a bit about these prison programs?
0: Yes, absolutely. I can. Yeah. I think. I think you know many of the things that um, that came out of that. A, re- a remarkable visit that I I was able to make to Rikers Island uh, prison in New York. Um, uh, really, you know, they apply to all 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 projects involving gardening and to people in their own gardens. But but it was very compelling, really, hearing prisoners who. Most in fact, almost all of them had had no experience of gardening before and and hadn't particularly expected to get very much out of it, but but many of them were were motivated at the same time in some way to change their lives, but they just didn't know how to begin to go about it. You know, that sort of sense of despair that everything that they just get get caught up back in the same loop and back in jail. Um, so so, I think. I think in terms of talking about the prison projects, it's also important to sort of keep a bit of a a general idea of how it it can help. The the project at Rikers is run by the Horticultural Society of New York, and um, it's been running for nearly 30 years now, but it's expanded a lot in the last decade or so. And and what struck me most was actually a conversation that I had with uh, a prisoner who uh who's called Samuel or I, ca- I call him Samuel in the book because for him he'd he'd been involved with the with growing the um vegetables and particularly harvesting the squash plants and that's what the the men had been doing just before I visited and he told me how um earlier that week he'd he'd had a telephone conversation with his mother his eighty Something, year old mother, and how for the first time, almost that he could remember, he had something positive to tell her, because he was telling her about the harvest, and and then they they'd got sort of caught up in her reminiscing about her garden, and um, she'd grown squash once herself, and that sense of suddenly glimpsing through, through. Through the garden, through growing something, through actually being able to share it, share the pleasure in it, um and you share the you know the tangible fruits of the earth as well, you know when you because one of the things that happens at Riker's is is the produce is shared, and the prisoners are able to um uh share share some of the food as well so so that sense of actually um I can make something different happen. It's very powerful. And it's, and it's one of the things that I think is, is very unique to gardening because to get that sense of making something sort of special or, or really worthwhile happen through, if one thinks about other, you know, forms of creative therapies, um, which can all do that in the long run, they, 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 they involve a much higher level of complexity of, um, you know commitment to it. If you're involved in, um, let's say, you know, woodwork or something like that, um, or other other sort of crafts, skills-based kind of projects, the time it takes you to to learn and the persistence you need to, to end, come with an end result that you feel really proud of is much longer. Whereas, whereas if you if you sow some sunflowers, you know, and, and three months later, this amazing sunflower is there, and you know you've had a hand in it that's that can be really important in in sowing a seed of of self-belief in people and 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 giving them a basis on which they can build build rebuild their self-esteem. So I think that, that in that way gardening is is very empowering. And and i I I mean I love, I still love working with seeds. It was one of the things that got me into gardening was was sowing the, the herb seed. And, and there is something extraordinary about watching that transformation happen and, and then being pulled into um, nurturing it because that's another very important part of the, the prison project is, is, um, is the way that it, 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 it gives people who, who may not have had much nurture or care in their lives, it gives them a, a relatively safe way of entering into that kind of relationship, a sort of nurturing, caring relationship. Um, uh, You know, because, uh, you know, real, real life relationships with people are much more prone to going wrong or, you know, you can intend something well, but it it comes over out wrong or you say it wrong and the whole thing is a disaster. Whereas actually nurturing a plant, it's, um, it's, 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 in a way, it's it's just much more straightforward. It's much more simple. And one of the things that they they commented on was this feeling that the plants didn't judge them, um, you know. So that actually they they entered into a different kind of transaction from all their other transactions in life, really. Um, and and a very important part of that is always in these projects is the is the way that the horticultural therapist um, helps them discover that in themselves and, and promotes that and gets people working at the right level of um, complexity for for where they're at, what they can manage. And um, so it, you know, it doesn't just happen on its own. It's part of the sort of culture of a therapeutic garden that that should happen. And
1: another thing that these garden programs are teaching them with, that, that their therapeutic gardening teachers are helping them understand is that Failures happen in the garden and they're nobody's fault. Nature is nature. Um, pests come, weather is fickle. Plants maybe aren't as suited to that environment as you thought they would be. Have the example in your own garden of these rose bushes that you so much wanted, but the act of trying to keep them alive in what clearly wasn't a habitat for them was not going to work. And what we see with the prisoners, what we see with some of the school children's programs, some of the programs uh, targeted to urban teens is that that when something goes wrong, as it were in the garden, it's not the way it is if it goes wrong at school or if you're arrested, that these cycles and rhythms of growth and decay and regeneration implicitly mean you absolutely have a second chance and the second chance will come around and it will come around again and again. And what it also means for the um, people in the therapeutic gardens um, for the hospital patients as they themselves are looking at their body in a new way and how they'll regenerate their life. Can you talk about the parallel between nature's regeneration and people who are needing or are learning that they can have a second chance?
0: Yes, I think it's a very um, important part of it, actually. And um, I think in terms of Uh, not only prison projects, but people who've experienced a profound trauma. Uh, I think people who've had a big life loss as well. Um, this sense that yes, you, you know, you have to reconcile yourself to the cycle of life in the garden, that things do die, they come and go, but then they, they grow again. And that you, by becoming part of that, I think at quite a deep existential level uh it becomes possible to to come to terms with various sort of fundamental realities about life um but the garden at the same time is always giving you a future and and, and a sense of hope so so there's a good balance between the kind of realities that you have to contend with in the garden and the sense uh uh that, that, you know that it's worth carrying on, I think so so I think that's very important and you know i think with when the pandemic started, certainly here um and i i I understand that it was the same in in the United States uh, that people people rushed to buy seeds from garden centers, and in fact, there was such a run on them here that that the the, 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 the Mail order outlets and and the centers themselves really couldn't keep up with it and and, and supply them and And I think that's a very that was a very telling moment in terms of what what the, what were that simple act of of sowing seeds was doing for people, because at a time when their plans, all of us, our plans were were cancelled or postponed or horribly uncertain. And there was a great deal of fear around and, and still is about where we, what we're, what's happening and how this is going to unfold. Um, just putting some seeds in the ground, you know, that quote you, 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 um, you read out earlier, you know, there is a little bit of a sense of security you get from, from knowing that you've done that. It gives you a bit of an anchor and that's what we need in these times. And, and it gives you, something to look forward to it gives you a future you know when everything else may be maybe on hold or you know or or, or actually for people who who who've become too depressed to imagine a future it gives you a very simple way of of envisaging a bit of the future and and that that effect is also very important in older age you know when opportunities are closing down or the future's closing. there's less to look forward to garden gives you something you can look forward to
1: I loved the project that you wrote about in the book where um, people who are uh, elderly but have a little bit of garden space get paired up with someone who's at a more physically vigorous point in their life And they work together so that the person, the elderly person can still have all the benefits of the garden there where they live, but it it adapts to what they can physically do.
0: Yes, I I really, um, I think that is a great project and I think it should be widespread. Um, And I don't know, know, I think it, it, it deserves to be adopted because it's such a good model. Because, you know, for all that we're talking about, the benefits of, of, of a garden, you know, actually looking out at a garden that you can no longer look after or looking out at a space generally that is, um, you know, overgrown and, uh, you know, not really thriving uh, is, is depressing and, and creates stress as well for someone who, who looks at it and thinks, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's like it compounds the sense of loss that they're experiencing with, with, um, with whatever old age or disabilities they're, they're struggling with. And it, it is a very simple solution because many people don't have access to a garden and, and yet they want to garden. So through this garden partners scheme, people are paired up and And it had enormous it's, it's actually the one I wrote about is based in Edinburgh, um, but it had enormous benefits for both sides, you know, both both people, um both the younger people who who were gardening and and the older people, who suddenly you know they were looking out at it a a nurtured space instead of a an abandoned sort of space and And that, you know that 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 would be just be such a great. A great project, I think, to, to make um, you know, part, part of our civic life, if you like, or suburban life. Um, so this had also it meant for the, those older people that they didn't necessarily look at the garden and think, oh, I've just got to move. I've got to leave this place because I can't stay on top of it anymore. It gave them a way of staying where they were, which is also very helpful. And they built up relationships with the people tending their gardens, you know, friendships, sprang up and they had a shared interest, you know, talking about the future, a shared interest. Suddenly a future opens up in the plans and discussions about what's going to happen in this garden.
1: And in the book, you talk about the importance of the social-emotional aspect of gardening. And one aspect we haven't touched on yet, and I'd like to at least talk about it for a few minutes, is um, the importance that of curiosity that children get to experience in a garden as part of their social, emotional learning um, that is different than some of the other aspects of gardening that we've talked about, because the children aren't necessarily uh, determined to grow something. They're more determined to explore and to be curious. And you talked a bit about that with your own children's experience in in the garden there um, at your own home when they were quite small. Can you talk about the importance of curiosity for children um, when they can be in a garden space,
0: yeah, I think I think it's something that many children today are are lacking is that sense of being able to to play in nature and notice and observe things, see them, you know, whether it's the insects or you know you were talking about it in your own garden, um, that sense of curiosity and discovery, and you know, again, in in the culture that we live in, uh, so much learning is now um, uh, sort of fed to people, you know, that, that actually students can become a bit too passive in, in that what they have to do is take in the facts and learn them and then be able to present them again. Um, so, so the idea of exploring is very basic to human psychology. And it's actually, in terms of our neurochemistry, it's associated with dopamine. Which is the the um, the neurochemical that that uh, lies behind all kind of foraging behavior and seeking behavior and exploratory behavior in in other animals too. So it's sort of across the animal kingdom. So it stimulates that, and with that comes a sense of purpose and motivation because that's what that's what follows, and also. Interestingly, dopamine is very good. At, um, uh, it it it's, uh, stimulates the laying down of memories, making new memories. So experience becomes much richer when we're in that state. And, and for children, it fires up the imagination particularly. So, so they, they, then de- they then have this tremendous resource. Um, and it's an emotional resource as well uh, that they can draw on. And, and there's, you know, a lot of evidence that, that what one of the things children do, uh, in nature is they create their own safe spaces, you know, whether it's their dens or their, and these are places where they, they can play and, um, you know, create, create a, a place where they can be free from the adult world, which can be a bit oppressive. Um, but they're free within within a safe confine of a garden, and and I think that's a very precious experience for children to have. Um, it gives them their own world while sort of being under the safe umbrella, if you like, of of um of the parental world.
1: That brought back memories of when I was very small, and I didn't quite do that at our home garden, but a nature space I did that was the beach, where I'd make my own little space with um, driftwood and seaweed. And I had a whole whole space of my own with a whole magical world going on. And there's really no toy that replaces that experience of being able to create that space for yourself in nature. What you Uh, can make out of those found things is far more satisfying than even the most delightful toy.
0: Absolutely. I agree completely. And I think it it actually links back to what we were talking about earlier to do with shaping your own world that 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 that's what that kind of play is about it's about shaping a little bit of your own own world Uh, and and it helps you these things help you later on in life to feel that you can imagine a future if you like and and actually you know gardening as i see it that is what gardening is about i think i think you know, it 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 is sort of an adult form of play, and I don't mean by that that it's not serious, but it. But actually, we enter into exactly that kind of activity, of of shaping our our, our world, and or our little bit of uh, around us, and and you know that that also has. Um, uh it has a biological it's a biological need to do that too i think uh, it's not only about the imagination and play but um but you know if you look at any organism in the environment you know birds create their nests you know uh they, 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 you know foxes have their their lair um so so that that need which is uh, instilled biologically To shape a little bit of your environment, to create a feeling of being at home in this place, uh, is 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 very central to our makeup, and and a garden gives us a very active way of doing that, of sort of endlessly revisiting it. Um, You know, once you've kind of made your house, it often stays as it is, whereas I mean, you might tweak it occasionally, but in the garden, you're constantly engaged in that process. It gives you that sort of anchor. Uh, in the earth, in the soil, on the land, um, which I which connects to our biological roots, I think.
1: And as you say, it connects us with each other. When when I moved to my little cottage here that has the little uh, gravel courtyard, um, when I when I first looked at it and I thought, well, I know I'll do something with this, but I have no idea what. That was kind of delicious in itself because it was going to take shape bit by bit, and it was going to be surprising as it did. And it was really sort of dependent on uh, finding a plant, you know, that I could afford with what was left in my budget and bringing it home and hoping it would do well in that space. And, and what you find then as you're doing this is that people you didn't know who had an interest in garden suddenly are having long chats with you. And there may be people you hadn't really spoken to much before. And so it's not just that the butterflies began showing up or that lizards or the birds, which I was delighted in, but other people began showing up, so much so that recently I've been going through back spasms. And two friends came over and just pruned and tended my whole garden for me and they had such a great time. They came back one more time without me asking. So it's remarkable how community shows up in many, many ways. And it starts sort of with the hope of one one or two for you seeds, seeds don't grow for me. I, maybe I'll get there. But but with the plants.
0: Yes 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 i think I think maybe you'll try, try some try some really dependable seeds. I bet you'll get them to grow um, because uh yeah seeds seeds yeah if you, if you, if you do something very very reliable uh it, it'll 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 usually perform for you um, but uh but I think yes, the connection between people is very important, and gardens lend themselves to to sharing every bit as much as a garden can be a private retreat um, they they also lend themselves to shared shared pleasures shared activity um, and actually that whole aspect of sharing in the garden space is certainly here is proving to be very very important in how people are managing the current situation because um the one thing we know about this virus is you're much less likely to catch it outside so so gardens as communal spaces have have come into their own even more at this current time yes and even
1: when we can't gather we can still talk with our friends about this is what's happening in my garden. I've FaceTimed my garden with people uh, who, who can't get to me because of the pandemic. And we've been able to talk about, you know, shared love of plants that way. So it's still uh, bringing us together. Um, in the few minutes we have left, can you talk about the fortuitous timing of your book being published now with the pandemic? And also tell us about the project that you're working on now that I know you're very excited about.
0: Yes, yes, um, I will. I mean, I, I have to say I have a slight problem with the word fortuitous because, because I, I mean, it was extraordinary that the book coincided with the pandemic because of all the things that I'd written about in the book, um, particularly the fact that at times of crisis, you know, for instance, I write quite a bit about World War I in the book, um, that, that people turn back to the land and they turn back to nature. And it's a phenomenon that's known as um, urgent biophilia. So that need that we feel uh, when there's a great level of trauma and fear to reconnect. Um, and it was on one level a very strange experience for me seeing the book come out when all these things that I'd written about were, were unfolding and happening. Um, but of course, it's actually also meant... That the, that the book has, has spoken to people in a much more powerful way than I think it would have done otherwise. And I, I've had just had an awful lot of messages on social media, um, and through my website from people who've, who've taken great comfort from the book and, and found that it's given them some hope in a very dark time. And, and also from my audio book, which I, I read myself. Fortunately, I, I finished the recording, uh, I think, about 10 days before lockdown started here. So I feel very grateful for that. Um, so that's, that's been a very, it's been a very interesting time. And, you know, I, I, think, I think what I hope is that, you know, when we come to next spring as well, because that, 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 we will still be recovering wherever we've got to in this, we will still be recovering. But actually the, the garden and, and people's connection with nature will will continue to be as strong as it has been over this over this spring and summer. Um, so so that's 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 talking about the pandemic. In terms of um, the project that you mentioned actually one of the one of the things that happened with that was because of because of the pandemic We, we brought, we brought at least part of that project forward. Um, and, but what we've been planning to do over the last year is create a community garden in, in an orchard that, um, is very close to where we live. It's only a few hundred yards. And it was a rather neglected orchard. It hadn't, um, been tended very well. And we didn't actually own it at the beginning, but we managed, we managed to buy it from my husband's sister. And we we want to build a building there that will be a community hub, a building for education, for schools to come and um, to hold events and talks and things like that. And we managed to get planning permission for that, which was not easy. So that was one step. Um, and the next step was that we were working with a, a mental health charity that um, works with young people suffering from learning disabilities particularly uh, on the autistic spectrum. And they'd they'd already started working in our orchard, um, propagating plants that were intended for uh, a garden that my husband, Tom, was scheduled to to, to plant at the Hampton Court Flower Show, the RHS, the Royal Horticultural Society's Flower Show at Hampton Court, um, which is another venue from, Alternative to the Chelsea flower show that happens in July. And because of the pandemic, all of that got put on hold and the charity could no longer come here because they couldn't um, come in their minibuses. So they moved, they moved the plants that they were going to carry on looking after back to their, their site, which is a few miles away, their main site. So we were left looking at, um, uh, at a patch of land. And we had intended in time to create allotments on sort of like small community individual plots for, for people to garden uh, and grow fruit and vegetables on. And we managed to order enough um, compost, mushroom compost and uh, manure as well um, to kickstart that sooner than we would have otherwise done. So we've now got, I think, about eight eight plots. it's not that many, but it's just enough for everybody living in the immediate vicinity who wanted a plot um, to start growing vegetables here. And that's been a very wonderful thing during the pandemic because um, it's brought people together. you know we're, we're all neighbors, we're all living in this small community. There's about 30 people living here. and um, it's brought them together in, in a new way. And, and it's been a lifeline for, for one or two of the people who've got health problems that they can they can get involved in their allotment and feel they're doing something healthy, um, connecting to people in a way that's safe outdoors. So, so that's been very lovely to see that happen. And you know what we're hoping now is to start building the building in the autumn and over the winter, and that next spring we can create another another uh, group of allotment beds um, vegetable beds uh, so that we can cast the net a bit wider and offer plots to people living in our our nearest village which is about a mile away and um, so that's that's where the that's where that project's heading and it is it is exciting it's been very nice to see it coming together although you know given Given the current climate, a lot of things are uncertain. How long it's going to take us to build the building, for example. Uh, you know, nothing nothing is going straightforwardly for anybody at any walk of life at the moment, pretty much. So, so, but we will we will carry on and we will keep it going. I think that's the main thing. I feel like
1: your grandfather's spirit is very strong in you. That you're carrying on with this project despite the state of the world, which was one of the stories that we we opened with was. How he made his way through when the world was in a terrible spot as well. Um,
0: yes, I, and I'll tell you something that really came to me at the start of the pandemic because it was it was exactly a hundred years since he had started attending that horticultural project that helped him. It was in nineteen twenty that he started. So it did. There is something very 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 linked up for me about that. Here we are a hundred years later, um, dealing with a very different kind of crisis, but where there's going to be a lot of rebuilding to do.
1: Well, on behalf of your readers, I, I hope that that will spawn a book as well, um, because that's a, an amazing story of trying to do that, especially during this time period and the people it will bring together and, and what it'll do for their lives. So um, hopefully that will That will lead to another book. Um, Sue Stewart-Smith, thank you so much for being here today and telling us about your book, The Well-Gardened Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature, which is available in hard copy and as um, an audio book read by Sue. We today have just touched on some of the themes of the book. I hope that listeners will find the book themselves and, and explore this topic even more. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. You've been listening to New Books Network. Please join us again.